From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, our focus is on the much-anticipated release of the report by Special Counsel Robert Mueller. Now that it is available, where do we go from here? Joining me to discuss the report and its political and legal ramifications are Elaine Carmack of the Brooklyn Institute and law professor Miriam Baer of Brooklyn Law School. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. Last week, Special Counsel Robert S. Mueller released his much-anticipated report documenting Russian efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election, and whether there was any conspiracy between candidate Donald Trump's 2016 campaign along with allegations of President Trump on obstruction of justice. According to the report, there was no evidence of a coordinated effort between Russia and the Trump campaign. On obstruction of justice, however, though the report would not say definitively there was no obstruction violations, it did cite 12 possible infractions. Prior to the release of the report, Elaine Kmart of the Brookings Institute was on the public morality to discuss the initial summary provided by Attorney General William Barr. We are pleased to have our return. Dr. Kmart recently penned a piece on the Brookings website entitled, Sorry, Mr. Barr, it's up to the public now. Dr. Elaine Kmart, welcome back to the public morality. Thanks for having me. My take on your piece um, that you wrote on for the Brookings site goes as follows. We had a legal process. That process worked. But now it's in the realm of the political, and that process is just beginning. How did I do? I think you got it. Say more. Well, the problem with the legal process around the President of the United States is that it is very difficult, if not impossible, to bring criminal charges against a sitting president. And let's face it, that's for good reason, right? Because everybody who disagreed with anything the president did would constantly be suing the president or trying to accuse them of wrongdoing. So presidents are pretty much protected for good and practical reasons from being prosecuted while they are in office. And so that's reflected in the Mueller report. I mean, the Mueller report basically lays out instances where uh, it certainly looks like President Trump obstructed justice, and yet no, does not go so far as to say as to bring an indictment against the president, because most legal scholars think you can't do that. So what they did is they basically made the case, handed it to the Congress, and now Congress has to decide what to do with this thing and what to do with this president, who clearly is operating outside the bounds of um, morality, as we've defined public morality. Um, He's clearly lied. He's clearly tried to protect himself and his his colleagues. Um, But it is not clear 
what Congress wants to do with it, whether they want to go so far as to bring articles of impeachment against him or whether they want to simply investigate him, put out the case, and let the American public decide in 2020. I think one of the reasons that Congress is being so hesitant here is that we are fairly close to uh, elections. And so by the time you drew up the articles of impeachment and you had a trial in the Senate, um, it could be that the president would only have uh, a year to go or maybe a little bit more than a year to go in his term in any event. Well, that just raises a a point for me in that um, in our um, rush to give a cheap version of history, whether we're making juxtapositions with Richard Nixon, who resigned in shame, mm-hmm. or if we're making um, more recent uh, with, with, with Bill Clinton and his impeachment, what often gets omitted that both of those presidents were in their second term. That makes a big yeah. difference, does it not? It does, it does make a big difference, absolutely. Um, and they, Richard Nixon, it was just, very clear. I mean, there was a smoking gun. It was just very clear that he personally had ordered the obstruction of justice, that he in, he wanted it to be carried out. I mean, there really was a smoking gun with Richard Nixon. There's nothing quite as dramatic with Trump. There's all these public statements. And, um, you know, yeah, they all look absolutely like obstruction of justice. But Nobody actually did anything about it. It was never followed through on. In Watergate, there was hush. There was money paid, which Nixon approved. Money paid to keep people quiet and to support their families while they went to jail. I mean, you know, it was it was really a much more sophisticated, if you will, uh, operation. Given our current uh, political atmosphere, has and I think you sort of touched on this in your piece. Has our uber-partisan divide made it really impossible to to hear the facts accurately? You talked about uh, Nixon's smoking gun. Most of us heard those tapes and said this is beyond our democratic bounds. Have we moved beyond that sort of um, dispassionate um, analysis? Yes, and and this is where I think a lot of people are um, disappointed with the Republican Party. In the Nixon instance, his own party said to him, look, you have to go. We, we have, there's enough, there are Republicans who are going to vote to impeach you and vote to convict you. And in this instance, the Republican leadership in the Congress is where you look to check the president. They've been a little bit muted in their response to the Mueller report, but basically they're not out there leading. And they're not turning against this president. And frankly, until the president's own party says, we agree with you, um, this president should be removed, you really, it's very hard to remove a president because it ends up looking to the president's supporters as if there was a coup, as opposed to a consensus about presidential uh, guilt. And that's what we're facing right now. Until Republicans move, and, and they won't move until some portion of Republican voters move, um, 
I don't think anything's going to happen here because the Democrats understand quite well that impeachment that is pursued by only one political party is not a good way to go about removing a president. You've got to have both parties involved. The reason the Bill Clinton impeachment not only failed but boomeranged on the Republicans because the Democrats actually picked up seats in 1998 was that um, it was only pursued by the Republican Party. There were no Democrats who thought Clinton should be impeached over this. You know, I'm thinking back to your piece on Brookings. I'm returning back to it on the Ipsos Reuters poll that you cited. Yeah. Um, it's almost like the two parties are living in alternative universes, alternate universes, I should say. <laughs> yeah, no, <yeah. laughs> that's exactly right. I mean, you have, you have basically Republican voters believing the president's contention that this is all fake news, that there was nothing there, that this was all a setup. And you have Democrats believing that basically the president of the United States is guilty of treason and conspiring with a foreign power, and he should be removed. And until there is movement, right, on some piece of that Republican vote, until some piece of them moves and says, "Uh uh-oh, this guy's a problem, um, I don't think we're going to see anything happen to this president until Election Day. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Elaine K. Mark of the Brookings Institute located in Washington, D.C. And Dr. K. Mark, you also cited a Quinnipiac poll where 84% of those surveyed wanted the Mueller report public. What does that say to you? That, that says to me that in this day and age, with all the information that we have and all the sources of information that we have, people want to make up their own minds. Um, They are less willing to believe the interpretation of a highly partisan press one way or another. They want to see for themselves. And I think people, I know people who don't work in politics, um, who are friends of mine, who've been, you know, dipping into the Mueller report and reading pieces of it here and there. I think these days people want to make up their own mind. They want to see what Trump did. They want to see what his associates did. They want to understand what what the lawyers mean when they talk about obstruction of justice. And I think people want to make up their own mind. That's why everybody who the when Trump was so quick to rush to say, I'm exonerated, I'm exonerated. I'm not sure that's the case. It's going to take a little bit of time for people to make up their own minds and decide. And as I say, the the people to watch are the Republican Party voters. We already know, by the way, that Democrats and independents um, are unhappy with this president um, and unhappy with his behavior in office. So, the, the real question are Republican voters. And as I recall, uh, um, going back to Watergate, as much as we laud um, Republican um, members of, of Congress, especially in the Senate, um, for saying, okay, the president has to go, it wasn't until that outcry of people, um, their constituents, is when that needle really changed. Is that, isn't that correct? Yeah, it, I mean, look, when when Nixon resigned, and in the month before he resigned, he had a 25 to 27 percent, depending on the poll, 
approval rating. Now, of that, most most of those people obviously were Republicans. So among Republicans, he had about a 50% approval rating. So the marker here is probably 25% or 50% of his party. Um, will Trump lose half of his, of the Republican Party, which then translates to about um, 75% of the general public, since Republicans are not even half of the public. So, you know, the real question is to watch Republican voters. And that's what was happening with Watergate, is that, you know, as time went on, as it became clear, as more and more of, of Nixon's top aides were indicted and convicted and sent to jail, as more word came out about the payoffs, et cetera, um, it, it became, people just started to turn on Richard Nixon, including not all, but some people in his own party. You know, one of the unfortunate aspects um, that a number of people, in, um, in my view, that a number of people share is this inability to separate the individual and the office. So as a result, um, in the current public discourse, is hamstrung by how you feel about the president and, and less about the broader concerns uh, about the office itself. So uh, people can support this president and this behavior, but probably wouldn't support this behavior if it was on the opposite party and vice versa. How do we move beyond that? I'm not sure what your question is. Well, Can I'm you... saying the off. I'm, okay, I mean, I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah. The, 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 there's, it's not about the individual. It's about the office. Yeah. And so the criteria that we hold, we tend to hold it for the individual because we support him or or opposed to him rather or her rather than about holding this higher standard to the office. And how do we get to that piece where it's about the office and not so much about the individual? Well, I think that that's that's where concepts like high crimes and misdemeanors, that's where concepts like being above the law, right, come into play. That, in other words, the most important thing about an, a, an executive office in a democracy is that they are not kings. They're not dictators. They're not above the law. So when an individual, even an individual that you like, finds themselves or asserts that they're above the law, thinks that they're above the law, thinks that they can get around um, the law, then I think you, the two come together, right? You, you, the two merge. You can't support an individual who would undermine, you know, one of the most foundational aspects of democracy, which is that nobody is above the law. And I, I guess the follow-up with that, is, is it also, in your view, that we, we, if we embrace that behavior, um, we're also forgetting that, politics, at least in our form of government, is cyclical. So if it happens now, it will happen again. <laughs> yeah, you know, you do not want to create a precedent, right? You want, in fact, to make sure that people in years to come who become president understand that there are constraints on their behavior and constraints on their power. 
And of course, Congress is very important in imposing those constraints. And I think that's where a lot of people have been disappointed in the Republican leadership in Congress. And and they have, I mean, I think sometimes they get a bad rap because I think there have been some important areas where they have imposed constraints on the president, um, especially in foreign policy in, in the last year or so. But by and large, they have not been as critical of the president as I think they frankly should be, frankly, for their own good and for the good of the image of their party. I have read, it seems, a plethora over the last week um, with um, writers calling um, for impeachment void of a smoking gun. Is that becoming a new normal for us in our public discourse? The call for impeachment? Yeah, without without the smoking gun. Just Well, I mean, the, the question of smoking gun is an interesting one because the obstruction of justice charges um, are quite public and certainly on the face of them seem to indicate that he is guilty of obstruction of justice. He did try to stop this investigation. Now, we don't have a tape of this, but we have him on television and in saying this in his own words. Mr. Holt, and, yes. Yeah, so so you, you've got, it's out there. And that's where I think this becomes a, now, it, I mean, the irony here is that, of course, we have aides who refuse to carry out his orders. So this is this sort of peculiar situation where somebody wants to do something criminal, but can't because nobody will listen to him. I mean, <laughs> you know, and I think that that's got, the, that's got everybody sort of in a tizzy, like, well, how guilty is this then? Um, and even in the Nixon case, the smoking gun where he told, he, he told Haldeman to tell the CIA to tell the FBI to stop the Watergate investigation, uh, they never did that. The FBI said no. Okay? But in that instance, Nixon's intent, without it actually happening, was enough to doom him. But, look, again, there's a lot of things that were going on at the same time. He, the Watergate destroyed his presidency. It took him down in popularity. It left him with a hardcore of supporters, but nowhere near a majority of supporters. Um, that's not seemed to happen yet with Donald Trump. And everybody's been wondering for a long time, what will break Trump's support? You know what I mean? What will um, start a, 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 an exodus of his supporters? Again, not all of them, but just enough that Republican members of the Congress say, hey, um, we give up on this guy. You know, though the president... Um, as you as you stated in your piece, has, has yet to crack um, the fifty fifty percent in terms of approval rating, with the exception of uh, of the Rasmussen poll, um, which which I personally don't count. Um, yeah. He is insulated by a group of supporters somewhere that ranges from forty five to thirty eight, and so that's entrenched in their support. And I sort of juxtapose that with the support that how Bill Clinton's support went up um, during impeachment. It, are those two the same, just a 21st century version of what's happening for Trump? It was, it was what happened for Clinton? I mean, 
you you already said you can't you don't know when he starts to lose support. Is that are we sort of circling the wagons? Is that what's going on here? Um, so far, we're circling the wagons. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's what's going on. Everybody's in their corners, and they're not coming out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, <laughs> and and that that's been clear. Um, whether or not that changes, as people get more familiar with the Mueller report, and as Congress gets into other issues that were not covered in the Mueller report, um, Trump's finances. How much of his fortune is owed to Russian banks? That's a big question that people probably need to know and probably ought to know. So as Congress dips into that, as they begin to get the redacted portions of the Mueller report, perhaps there's something in there that will change this equation. Uh, We haven't seen it so far, but this isn't over. This is really just beginning. I think think of this in two stages, right? Stage one was the investigation of and the of the special counsel of Mueller. Stage two is really a much more public stage. That's the stage where what you have is the public themselves evaluating this information and indicating to their polit- to their elected officials, to the politicians, what they think of it. Um, if the Republican Party voters are uniformly, you know, if they stay behind the president, there's going to be a lot of members of Republican members of Congress and, and the Senate who will be reluctant to go against their base. If, on the other hand, they start to trend downwards in the way that we've seen independents and Democrats uh, trend down, um, then perhaps members of Congress will decide that they ought to take some action. Um, I I guess part of the dilemma seems to me, um, going back to the poll that you you cited in your piece, where 84 percent want this released. I saw a poll poll this morning where only— 31% Thirty-one percent plan to read it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they. Well, look, you know, it's like it's like everything. I mean, people who are not it, people have lives, right? If you're, you know, if you're an X-ray technician, right, you got other things to do during the day than to read the Mueller report. <laughs> but you're gonna you're gonna hear about it. You'll read some news reports about it. Maybe you'll be online and you'll look at a piece of it. Or you'll you'll read an article about it by a journalist you like. I mean, people get their news slowly. It seeps through. Uh, people have lives. They have jobs. Um, not everybody's job is um, my job and your job. Right? I was going to say. Just... I was about to say. Are you suggesting that you and I do not have lives? Is that is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, our jobs are to read the Mueller report. Right. And not everybody's job is to do that. But I think what happens in situations like this is that people be, talk to each other, they uh, read news, they listen to television or radio, and they begin to form impressions. And we'll see. It, my guess is by June, give it, a, give it another month or so, we'll have a pretty good idea of what the public verdict is on this. And, of course, the members of Congress will be also listening to the public reaction. 
If you were advising the Democratic Party, who just took the majority, they have several new high-profile members, um, what would be your advice to them on how to handle this particular process? Um, I think so far so good, right? I mean, I think what the House leadership has done so far is they've said, Look, we're not going to be – we're going to pursue investigation, but we're not going to be drawing up articles of impeachment tomorrow, okay? Um, part of it is that they themselves need to figure out what's in this report and what's in the redacted portions of this report, which they will they – will, some of them will, in fact, see. Um, I think the second thing is that there are issues surrounding Donald Trump that bear on his fitness to be president that were not part of the purview of the Mueller investigations. And most of that has to do with his finances. Um, and, you know, does he have a significant conflict of interest when it comes to foreign policy, for instance? So I, I think that there are other issues out there that were not covered in the Mueller report that Congress is going to investigate, and uh, we'll see what they find. There's a lot of smoke here. Okay, much more so than there was even in the Nixon um, impeachment question. And for those who may be unaware, um, President Trump recently filed an injunction to block um, the oversight committee led by uh, Representative Elijah Cummings from obtaining his um, tax returns. That's right. That's right. So, and so you know, there's a there's a whole there's a whole financial picture here that is. Because the president never, A, he never released his taxes, and B, he never recused himself from his businesses, business interests, which every other president has done. He still is the head of his business. Um, Because of those two things, there's still a lot of suspicion here about the president and, frankly, his ties to Russia. Any thoughts why that was allowed to happen while he got a pass, and I can't think of any president, any presidential candidate in the past um, would have received a pass since Gerald Ford made his tax returns public in 1976, I believe. So they've all made they've all made their tax returns public, but there is no law requiring them to do so. So um, I I suspect that the House is going to pass. I think it's included in HR one. I, I suspect that fairly soon we will have a law in the books that require presidential candidates to make their tax refer, tax returns public. Yeah, and because otherwise, I mean, you, we, we're in the situation now where we're speculating about the president's motives, particularly in in this case, in, in some areas of foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, this is quite. I mean, this is quite serious, right? I mean, there are people who are alleging that basically the Trump empire is a house of cards built on Russian money. If that's the case, then that's a very serious problem for a president of the United States. Um, If not, then no problem. If he had an investment here and there, but he had lots of other investments, then then it's not a problem. Um, Congress needs to find the answer to that. Well, um, and I think, by the way, going forward, uh-huh. I think going forward, we do need presidents to um, show us their financial 
interests. And, and again, most of them have, most candidates have. Yeah, this this is the first time in, in, in my lifetime um, that I recall where this, this has actually been an issue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, look, that alone raises red flags, right? right. <laughs> Why doesn't he want his tax returns shown? There's no indication that he's under audit, okay, that has not been confirmed anywhere. So we're, you know, again, this is a lot of things. There's a lot of questions about this man, about how he came into office, about his behavior uh, in office, um, his loyalties, et cetera. And Congress needs to get to the bottom of it. And, and even being on an audit is, is no reason not to um, make your taxes. Of course not. No, of no. course not. Well, to to one person who has nothing better to do than to read um, the Mueller report <laughs> from another, thank you so much, Dr. Elaine K. Mark, for joining uh, me once again on the public morality. <laughs> that was Elaine K. Mark of the Brookings Institute. Stay tuned as I discuss the legal aspects of the Mueller report with law professor Miriam Baer on the public morality. Welcome back. As we continue our discussion on the Mueller report, I'm joined by Brooklyn Law School professor Miriam Baer. Professor Baer is a former assistant U.S. attorney for New York's Southern District. And professor Miriam Baer, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you. Legally speaking, what does the Mueller report reveal to you? So it um, very comprehensively works through a series of incidents and then explains, and, and I'm talking about volume two, right? So there are these two volumes. First volume shows me, hey, here's the way in which um, Russia interfered with the election. Here's the various things they did. Here's what they had been planning. Here are all these contacts. But it's really, when everyone talks about um, crimes, for the most part, people have been focusing on volume two, and volume two focuses on efforts to obstruct justice, which really efforts to undermine the special counsel's investigation itself, right? And so um, volume two lists a bunch of incidents. And then for each of those incidents, the report really carefully asks, is this obstruction of justice? And obstruction of justice under the federal code is actually more than one statute. So we often say, oh, that's obstruction of justice, meaning you're undermining some sort of legal proceeding or investigation. But actually, there are multiple statutes, sometimes overlapping and definitely confusing, that apply to different types of obstruction. So the report is very careful to say, okay, we looked at these different statutes, and then for each of these statutes, you're always looking really generally for three things. So you're looking for what was the obstructive act? Is there this nexus we're looking for between the act and the proceeding? And then do we think we have evidence of what we would call corrupt intent? And to me, um, even though maybe not every single incident um, has the perfect combination of all the evidence you want, 
I think it's more than clear that there are several incidents here that are quite disturbing on their own and certainly in the aggregate um, show an effort to undermine, a sustained effort to undermine the investigation, enough so that people should be concerned. Would you explain, legally speaking, um, those who put forth the argument that if there's no underlying crime, there cannot be obstruction of justice? Okay, and that's just false, right? I mean, there are multiple times in which people, you know, everyday people get um, prosecuted for obstruction of justice, even though there's, quote-unquote, no evidence of an underlying crime. And remember, part of that has to do with the success of the obstruction, right? Like, if I do things right, then, well, of course you couldn't find an underlying crime. But even apart from that, the reason why obstruction on its own is um, illegal is that we don't want people to undermine government processes, right? Like, when you're investigating someone and someone makes it, you know, some witness says, I'm going to really make it impossible for you to investigate this, whether or not that person did something wrong or not, um, or violated a, a law or not. The point is you're undermining government processes, and that itself is its own wrong. And so for that reason, that's just not, that's not a legal, that's not, that's not a true legal defense. Um, you know, one of the interesting things to me about this whole saga, and I'm starting with January 20th, 2017 as a saga, <laughs> is that um, it's easy to forget that so much has happened. It's easy to forget what happened previously. And, and I'm, I'm raising that because I heard you um, on an interview uh, several months ago talk about the norms of independence and what is that and how does it play out in the Mueller report? Right, so that's a different issue, although it, you know, it all sort of ties together. There is a general idea that you're supposed to allow, um, there's two things going on here. One, we, the president isn't supposed to really, there's sort of a norm there, which is that the president doesn't interfere with the Department of Justice, right? Um, it's one thing as a matter of policy, for example, we expect the president to sit down with his attorney general and say, Maybe these are the major things I want to you know, emphasize in my um, Department of Justice. You know, these are the types of crimes I want you to focus on. That's one thing. Um, it's quite another, and it's really unprecedented for the president to say um, to uh, you know, any member of the Department of Justice or to his people saying, here, go contact the Department of Justice, I don't want you investigating X. I don't want you investigating Y. Um, the president talking to the FBI, you know, to, to, this was why the, the James Comey moment was so, um, I think, uh, surprising and chilling for many of us. The idea of the president taking the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation aside, quietly even, and saying, you know, leave this Flynn matter alone, or I hope you'll see through to leaving the Flynn matter alone, whatever the actual language is, that goes against any sense of sort of what we would think of as sort of uh, normal operation, uh, ordinary operating procedures. Mm -hmm. And that and that does could lead could be a form of obstruction obstruction of justice. Right. I mean, what you would say is something like this: Look, it's the mere fact it's out of the ordinary. Okay, fine. That doesn't necessarily mean it's obstruction. However, if it has the effect of somehow slowing down hindering with a proceeding, with an investigation, for example, if there were a grand jury investigation, and I think you're doing it because you have a corrupt intent, 
right? Um, the fact that it's so out of the ordinary and the fact particularly that that particular meeting that, you know, uh, the Mueller report describes, um, you know, Trump's having dinner with Comey and Comey thinks there are going to be other people at dinner and he's surprised when he gets there and realizes he's only having dinner with Trump. So those kinds of moments where they're sort of concealed, they're kind of quiet, they're sort of surprising, they seem really strange, those kinds of facts are important when you're looking at obstruction cases. Um, going into Volume 1 momentarily, how uh, is there anything about the redactions that jumped out at you at all? You know, it's hard to say. Um, I wasn't so. One thing I thought was interesting, and again, I'm not as I didn't count. So I, I got to say, I didn't sit there and like count how many of redactions are of one kind or another. But it seemed like a lot more of the redactions, and again, this is just by my eyeball, were sort of the harm to ongoing ma matter. Like in other words, um, the purpose of the redaction seemed to be more the oh, this will harm our ongoing case. Uh, or ongoing investigations as opposed to uh, I didn't see as many grand jury uh, as I expected to, but that may be just, I have to say, that is the, the least scientific uh, study that anyone has done. So I don't want to, you know, rely too much on that. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Brooklyn Law Professor uh, Miriam Baer about the legal ramifications of the recent release Mueller report. And Professor Baer, did we learn anything new about uh, former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn or former campaign manager Paul Manafort? I imagine if you're someone who had been following everything possible about Manafort, I'm not sure that I saw new things in there. But again, I wasn't, I'm not a Manafort expert, but it didn't look like I was suddenly shocked by new things. Um, I think with Flynn, uh, I remember being surprised, not so much about the Michael Flynn part of it, because we did know a fair amount of that, um, but I remember being surprised about, I guess it's K.T. McFarland's little piece, uh, and about how much were, I, I remember being more surprised, not about Flynn himself, but about the sort of role that um, Reince Priebus was playing sort of as a go-between, that after Flynn was fired, uh, it, it, you know, we're let go, that uh, Donald Trump was effectively, again, this is what the report says, that President Trump uh, appears to get Reince Priebus to talk to K.T. McFarlane after she, and so she had worked for Flynn, to, uh, sort of second-in-command to Flynn, that he had asked her, I want you to write some sort of memo memorializing that I, the president, never told Flynn to make those contacts with Russia. That I was surprised by. That I did not know about. Did the special counsel's report, in your view, fall short of establishing uh, obstruction as a legal matter, or, or, or was it just unwilling to trespass because of a longstanding DOJ policy not to indict a sitting president? Well, I think clearly, I mean, I think this is going to be one of those things we'll never know for sure unless, you know, perhaps um, if Mueller testifies in Congress, we'll, we'll get more insight on this. Um, I think there are sort of clearly um, I think it was somewhat of a misleading statement when Attorney General Barr initially said in his four page memo when he first issued his first sort of statement when he said you know he implied that you know uh, sort of the only reason uh, not to bring uh, an obstruction case 
was that there was a lack of, of evidence. At least that's what I take away from his four-page summary, and that you know there was no real view of, of that this wasn't about the fact that this was the president of the United States and he's a sitting president. That is not the way the Mueller report itself reads. I think it's it's uh, it may not. I don't think it's super clear. I think I will say one thing. Um, one thing the report does point out, you know, it's the Department of Justice's policy. You're, you're not supposed to indict a case unless you think you can get a conviction. So you might take into account here one point, and I don't know how much you know the special counsel did, but you know this is an issue. This is still at the end of the day. Um, I sort of disagree with folks who say, oh, my God, it's a slam dunk. I don't think anything's a slam dunk. Uh, and I think particularly here where you have a historical case with lots of moving pieces, with lots of facts, with lots of intermediaries, there's always the potential for a case to go south um, because you don't have anyone on tape and you don't have any emails. And that means there's always opportunity for defense, uh, you know, a skilled defense attorney to poke holes, right, in the story, particularly when it's kind of convoluted. I mean, it's one thing when everyone who knows this story really well and has been living with it reads the report. They understand it one way. But I do think it would still be a heavier lift than maybe some people are, reason, are realizing were this ever to actually um, be um, brought to, you know, if this were actually indicted. Now, that being said... Um, I do think it's clear from the report that, you know, the, the special counsel very much took into account the fact that this was, um, you know, a sitting president. And there's a and, and also that would be problematic to indict someone or indict someone under seal, that this could do, you know, real harm. And so I think the idea was we're going to put this information out there. And I think also many people would say that there's some language in the special counsel's report that sort of implies, look, we think this is Congress's job to decide what to do with this. And maybe that is why this is the really the appropriate next move is to consider impeachment. Um, and, and maybe this, this next question is going in that same direction perhaps. But how, in, in retrospect, how significant – was Attorney General Barr's um, four-page summary of a of a 448-page volume <laughs> set? <laughs> yeah, I think no good can come from trying to summarize a good-page document in four pages. And I, I think he ultimately hurt himself. I think that that's probably right. I mean, one thing he didn't really need to do what he did in the sense that. Um, he could have, it's sort of interesting the way this was written. Volume one is separate from volume two. You don't need, and they're sort of, they stand separate and apart from each other, even though obviously it's very helpful to read volume one before you read volume two, but you don't really need volume one to read volume two. And volume two is only very lightly redacted. So he could have, if he had wanted to, um, released volume two without the four-page, you know, or he could have said, here's a one-page summary, and here's volume two, and I'll give you guys volume one when I finish redacting it. And I think that would have been, I think that would have been arguably a, the better way to go. So in, in your view, is the Mueller report the end, as some have offered? Um, some have even gone as far as to say, move on, or is it, uh, in the words of Winston Churchill, uh, the end of the beginning? Yeah, I think it's more the latter. Um, I, I think it's inconceivable um, that House Democrats will let this just sort of lie. Um, and I think it's their duty to investigate it further. 
uh, and to find out more, uh, particularly given the threat involved. I mean, the, the, the point is, you know, I don't see any reason why um, the Russians would just say, okay, we did this and we're done. I don't know why they wouldn't do it again. Um, and I don't know why they would stop only with the presidency. I mean, if you are a member of Congress, you're going to be up for election soon at some point. Um, and if for some reason the Russians don't like you, I don't know why they wouldn't try to use their various powers to help other people and interfere in other investigations. So that ought to be something you worry about. And then you ought to worry about then the ways in which this um, president is he, in fact, is his administration protecting against that? Uh, and so this behavior that's described in Volume 2 ought to concern you. You, you um, finally, I mean, you were a former assistant attorney at, um, in New York Southern District. Now, mm -hmm. is there anything in that report that suggests that they're going to have additional work? How, how, how does that play itself out? Right. Well, so there's definitely references, although some of that is in volume one where you see, you know, we've referred things and then you can't really tell what's been referred because obviously that gets redacted. Um, I think we know that there are, there are certainly matters that have been referred um, to the Southern District of New York. Um, and there also, we do also happen to know that there are matters, for example, in New York State, this, you know, the Attorney General, the New York State Attorney General has investigated certain aspects of, you know, the Trump Organization. Uh, so I don't think um, any, I don't think we can just assume, that's why I think it's sort of silly to assume it's all over, you know, um, and I think we will probably hear more uh, news, I would expect, in the next year. And then that's another interesting question. If the House Democrats, through their various investigatory um, arms, do open up these investigations, um, they may not just stop at whatever is in the report. They might indeed try to bring out additional information, find out uh, what, you know, for example, that would also relate to uh, clearances. That I know there is like that effort to find out what's going on with the clearances and whether people got improper clearances, and then um, for class to review classified information, or did people, uh, you know, uh, with regard to Mr. Trump's tax returns, right? So I would think that we are we just are not done, and we're going to hear more. Brooklyn Law School professor Marion Baer, thank you so much for joining me today on The Public Morality. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. You can also subscribe to The Public Morality on iTunes. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams. Uh, 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 uh.